Hello, faithful nudists. Before we get started with this episode, I wanted to take an opportunity to mm, check in a little bit about life, thoughts. I basically wanted to talk at you for a little bit in hopes that this could be a useful thing for you, question mark, me, the podcast. Anyway, where to begin? I think lately it's been really easy. I'm going to speak from my own experience, but I think this might be applicable to other people, hence why I'm saying it here. I think lately one of the true challenges of our time has been staying optimistic in the face of what's been going on politically, uh, environmentally, etc. <laughs> One thing I've noticed is since I've moved to Salt Lake City, I've, there's been two key things I've noticed environmentally. First, there's smog pretty regularly, which moving from Montana, I haven't been used to. And so it's interesting to go and look at the actual air quality every day and um, have to do things such as like cancel runs, choose to stay inside for a day because of how bad the air quality is. Some of that is fires. So, you know, that's a little bit out of our control and in some instances can be good. However, a lot of that, I believe, is just air pollution that uh, from cars and refineries, etc. The other thing I've noticed is a, across the valley from me, on the west side of the Salt Lake Valley, there is a, a collection of mountains that have just been exploded and chopped down. <laughs> it's literally a... Like, there's mountains, and then there's a scab where a mountain used to be. And this is, this land scab is the largest pit mine in the world, the the Bingham Canyon mine, which apparently, according to what I'm looking at right now, iseekplant.com, a blog, uh, is responsible for the production of 25% of the copper used in the United States. That's a lot of copper. I mean, it seems useful, but also there's a... A giant landscape there, and I've just been, just been dipping my toes into that world, and it's crazy how much land has been torn up for coal, for example, in Appalachia in 2009. So 10 year, no, 11 years ago now, a study showed that there were 120 million acres of Appalachian mountains basically destroyed so that coal could be surface mined. So anyway, my head's been in this this place environmentally thinking about just the destruction of a lot of our or I don't know the, there's obvious destruction which I've seen and then there's like the talked about threat of destruction of our natural resources or just the loss of these to um private institutions. So I don't know. There's plenty of opinions to be had about those things, and no doubt there's use uses for land that are necessary for the functioning of society. But I still question how much how much we really need versus what is excess. I suppose um, politically, 
you know, I'm not super tuned in politically as far as the facts go, but from my own experience, it's it just feels like this cycle of I yeah, like like for example, right now <laughs> I don't even want to talk about politics because I'm afraid it's going to be too divisive for you, my audience, and to talk about politics with friends I feel like I have to have I have to have a pretty sufficient level of understanding of the other person to engage in a discussion that borders on politics that will be in my opinion productive at all it feels increasingly like you have to know the other person essentially before you can bring certain topics up so that you're not too divisive or is a propaganda fest i don't even want to get into like sides of the aisle but it just there's so much pressure from both of them that it's hard to even begin to talk about where you stand on these things without being painted as something (laughs) which is incredibly frustrating when you're trying to keep an open mind as a person so i began uh talking at you with the idea that right now it's very hard as a person, at least in U.S. society, to like pull away from all of these things that are like dragging, I don't think like suck you in on whether it's on your phone or like in conversation that drag you into these head spaces that are like just ready for upset, I guess. They're just it's hard to resist being pulled into a place where you feel like emotionally upset at something. And I mean, it it makes sense, right? Because like most media, it seems like most media, like most media has the intent of going in and appealing to emotional part of you. And that's not always bad. Like what are we doing with the node, right? We're emotional creatures. And so we feel things in response, right? in response to information. In fact, like we desire to learn information because of the way that it makes us feel. So I think my main problem with this is that so much of it is negative emotion that is being like elicited in us. There's a lot of frustration without solution. So that's what I've been thinking about lately. And I think I think this podcast with Jonathan illustrates one of the one of the many ways we can address frustration or emotions in our lives and withdraw and that's not to say that withdrawing fully is the answer to these problems i'm not saying that we shouldn't engage with what's been reported to us or our political sphere whatever but what i am saying is that i think people need to ground themselves and i think jonathan is a perfect example of someone who has found a way to ground himself in reality I think that skill particularly is something that a lot of people might need and that I hope you can find. So, to end my slightly pessimistic monologue, I bring you Jonathan Koenig. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. All right. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's nice to have you here. I thought we'd start 
by you just telling us about yourself, about your life, who you are, where you're from, uh, like what you've done up until now. Brief summary. What I've done up until now. Nutshell version. Wow, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> Let me see if I can cover those points here. Okay. Um, so my name is Jonathan Koenig. I'm from Fairbanks, Alaska. I'm 24 years old. Uh, lived in Fairbanks most of my life. Well, pretty much my whole life. And uh, went to high school there and college there at the University of Alaska. And uh, yeah, now I've currently am just living with my parents at home here in Fairbanks and trying to work as much as possible and save up for the winter where I plan to work less and hopefully climb more. Cool. So that's kind of where I'm at. Okay. Okay. I'm going to reach into what I'm I... kind of a dirt bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the, call it. in the best sense. Um, okay. I'm glad I know things about you. Okay. So you went to college, right? But you, yeah. you removed yourself from college, right? I did remove myself from college. Okay. Some people call it dropping out. <laughs> yeah. I call it, I'm just taking a break. <laughs> That's good. Okay. But what did you do after, after that? What, what, what was did the, I do after that? Well, what was the drive to drop out, I guess? And then. Well, before, before I dropped out of college, I did a, uh, eight month long, like outdoor guiding school in Lakeside, Montana. Okay. And, uh, uh, even before that and through that, I have, well, I've always had like a passion to the outdoors and just moving outside. Mm -hmm. And, um, I grew up skiing a lot. I, my family lived on like a little ski hill in Fairbanks that had school buses that like take you up to the top of the hill, drop you off and you just ski down. Oh, fun. And, uh, back in the day, the bunny hill was free. So, uh, you could go and like ski all day for free. So we took advantage of that. Um, I'm from a big family. I have six siblings. So maybe that's, uh, important to know for listeners, but, uh, yeah, never a boring time growing up. Cool. And, uh, yeah, I always knew I had a, a passion for the outdoors and, um, I've kind of like looked into mountain guiding since I started climbing mm -hmm. just cause I was through the, uh, the AMGA, which American mountain guiding association, for those who don't know, they're like pretty active on Instagram and share all these like tech tips for climbing and different like resources for just making yourself safer in the mountains. And, uh, yeah, that's something I've like grown in interest in ever since I've uh, started climbing. So after, like, I went to school for three years at the university in Fairbanks, and I spent two years in mechanical engineering and kind of decided that that wasn't really for me. I didn't want to, like, put all this work in and go work in an office and not enjoy my life. And so I, I switched to business and thinking I could use that for, uh, for guiding or something else down the road, but I wasn't really like 
I didn't have a lot of like professors I connected with and I wasn't really like passionate about what I was learning. And so I felt like I would just get more use out of a uh, college experience if I actually knew what I wanted to do with my life. So this is the, uh, the path I'm on now. I'm trying to become a mountain guide. Awesome. So, so you, yeah. you got really close then you had three years. You probably have all your gen eds done, but yeah. So you, you dropped, you dropped out and then started doing the things that you wanted to do essentially. Yeah, pretty much. I dropped out in just after going on like a month long climbing trip at the end of 2018. And I was like, well, I don't really like my heart is not in this school thing. So I'm going to like reassess and reevaluate what I want to do with my life. And so I, uh, Decided I want to climb Denali, and I got a few buddies who were also interested, and so we, we trained all winter and went uh, and climbed Denali spring of 2019. Wow. And that was, like, a super cool experience for me, just seeing, like, just, like, being out in the mountains with your friends and, like, trying really hard and, like, pushing and working towards this goal and accomplishing it, but also just, like, spending a lot of time just out in the mountains and like meeting other people on the mountain who are like share a similar passion and mm-hmm. it's really cool to like meet other guides who have worked in the industry for a long time and just like encourage me to like yeah go for it like if you if you have like the the gumption to come up here without a guide and like get up this mountain then like you're totally like a guy we would be interested in working with us so yeah that was like a pretty encouraging experience for me yeah that sounds sweet um so you went up without a guide and yeah what okay so what would the difference be if you went up with a guide so basically uh guides can teach anybody who has like the overall athletic capability to like hike with a heavy pack for like eight hours a day Mm -hmm. at high altitude, they can teach those people all the skills they need to survive in the mountains. So whether that's like walking in crampons, like roping up for glacier travel, like digging a camp, like cooking at camp, like a lot of, a lot of people who like want to do these mountains, but don't have all these outdoor experiences they can hire a guide and they'll teach you all that like on the mountain pretty much and like wow. in the time before going on the mountain and they'll do the route finding for you they'll like find good places to set up camp they'll show you how to melt snow for water and like pretty much like make the whole process like you don't have to figure anything out besides your own like personal needs yeah and then you also have somebody looking after you and looking after your needs and helping you like work up the mountain towards the goal. Yeah. Well, that's really cool that there's a teaching aspect to it. I hadn't thought of it like that in the past. Yeah. Guiding is like you're, they're basically the, like the teachers of the mountains because if you're just like going out with your, your friends, you're not necessarily like trying to like learn new things, whether it's like, new ways to manage the rope or build anchors or like just approach terrain. Mm -hmm. You're kind of just like going out there to climb and have fun and like 
you might learn something along the way, but um, you're not going to learn in the same way if you have like somebody who's dedicated their life to traveling in the mountains and knows all these like tricks and tools to use to. Yeah, I mean, if you work travel up upward there, safely. Yeah, if you work out there, you probably basically live up there for a good yeah, portion totally. of the time. That's cool. Yeah. I want to jump back. You said you went on a month-long climbing trip prior to deciding to leave college. Did that play a big role, you think, in your decision? Well, I think partially. It was like I had spent a semester, like the previous semester, just like not really feeling like I wanted to be in school or feeling like like my passion was in it. And I... I feel like I'm a person who's very motivated by like what I'm passionate about. Yeah. And so if I can't, it's hard for me to like, just like grind doing something I really don't want to do yeah. unless I know that there's like an end goal that I'm reaching where that is something I'm passionate about. So like, you know, with working, it's sometimes different because I know that each dollar I make can go towards doing things I want to do. Mm -hmm. but with school it was like I don't really see how this is like pushing me in towards where I want to grow as a person yeah and who I want to be and so that that was just like a really hard experience hard semester for me mm -hmm. and then I um was also in a like a long distance relationship then and uh yeah, so that, that was also hard dealing with that. But, uh, yeah, I went on that trip um, over Christmas break with a few friends. We flew down to Missoula, Montana, got uh, got my Subaru that I left there from the previous summer, and uh, we drove down through Montana, um, did some ice climbing and skiing, and then drove uh, down to Utah, spent a, a few weeks there just – just skiing around resorts and then we uh spent another uh, uh i think week climbing in red rocks and then we drove back north to alaska and my friend ended up tearing his acl on the way back oh no he's uh unfortunate but on a climb or what he's good now no skiing at revelstoke in canada okay he dropped off a cliff and uh hit a rock he did not object and he like tomahawked and torqued his knee. Oh my god. Yeah, it, that was, sounds uh, gnarly. it was pretty gnarly. Yeah. Okay. So you're like not only did you go on this trip, which was filled with a lot of things that were like intrinsically motivating and that you liked, but you'd also done what did you say it was like an eight month uh guides guide school or mountaineering school? beforehand yeah it was a like a mountain guiding school we did like rock climbing mountaineering and backpacking okay and was that through your through the university or did you just no that was through a, a group called ywam mm -hmm. and uh youth with a mission it's a christian or organization that has a uh, bases all over the world and they do like different missions trainings and this is uh like a very specific school that was offered in montana okay in lakeside there at this one campus okay called the outdoor ministry program 
Okay, so you spent like eight months there primarily learning how to mountaineer, essentially? Yeah, like mountaineer, rock climb, and also like take people oh, okay. up and on on these experiences. So like not just like how to climb, but how to lead a group of people through the mountains. Okay, that sounds and, awesome. Uh, like we did all everything from like LNT training and like bear safety to like just how to build a snow cave we did a like an avalanche course as part of that we did a wilderness first responder program as part of that and just like kind of all-encompassing like prepare you to be able to guide other people okay so i imagine that probably laid a big foundation for you wanting to make that transition as well yeah totally cool um okay let's talk a little bit about what mountaineering is so you climb denali so maybe we can do it in the context of denali so what do you need to know to climb denali besides like what you were saying being in physical shape to like pull some weight what goes into planning and carrying out a denali trip well uh denali is a pretty uh I'd say it's a fairly straightforward mountain to climb and primarily like it's high altitude, but mm-hmm. it's uh, not very technical up the West Butchers route. And there's probably a, over a thousand people climb it every year or attempt Denali every year. Wow. And there's tons of blog posts online that you can read about like training, like how to prepare food. I would say most of the, like a lot of the hard work of Climbing a mountain like Denali goes into like all the, the the preparations. Like you need to find all this gear that's like specific to Denali, like cold weather gear, like really warm mountaineering boots, like winter tents. You have to have a lot of equipment, a lot of food. A lot of parties bring like two tents, one for cooking, one for sleeping, so you can like cook inside and not have your tent like all condensate with the uh the moisture from boiling water and you also have a place to hang out so uh yeah i guess to answer your question there i would say climbing denali is it's all about preparation and just like learning information but not only that like practicing the skills it takes to live like in a snow environment for like up to three weeks or a month Mm -hmm. um know all the skills to like pack food that's light but also nutritious and is gonna like feed you over the whole uh whole period so you don't want to bring too little food yeah and so like just knowing how many calories you need each day is uh like a huge part of how much you're gonna bring how much like fuel are you gonna need so Mm -hmm. there's all these details that go into the planning of like an expedition mountain like Denali. Like this is something that takes like the average party like 18 days to climb. So you, you spend a long time like acclimating and just like working your way up the mountain. And because you need like so much food for a trip this long, I think we had like 50 pounds of food per person. Wow. Our whole kit is super heavy. So we had like probably 130 150 pounds of stuff per person wow and you can't bring all that like up the mountain in one load so you do like 
they call it double hauling. And so you do like one, most people do one carry on the flat glacier to like the camp one. Camp one is like at the bottom of where the mountain starts to get steeper. And you'll like do, um, most people do two carries up from camp one to camp two at 11,000 feet. Camp one is at like 7,800 feet. Camp two is at 11,000. So they'll do two loads up to there and then maybe take a rest day and then they're up at 11 and then maybe they'll do two more loads up to 14 camp and 14 camp is where you, you just hang out for a while until you're waiting to summit. So you acclimate up there and most people want to spend at least a week wow. at camp or at 14 camp, camp three, um, before they go for the summit. And uh, some people spend a night on their summit push up at 17 camp, which is uh, like the last camp before the summit. But uh, we opted to not spend a night there because uh, even though it's like more climbing up from 14 camp, you have to haul all your gear up to 17 camp and it's kind of like in this windy spot. It's really cold. Okay. And that just sounded like a, a miserable time. And then you'd have to like bring all your stuff down after you come down from the summit. So mm -hmm. seems logistically easier to just go for a bigger push and hope you have an, enough energy to make it all the way there. But once you're you're there and back to camp 14, then you just spend one day up at the high, higher altitude, like above 14,000 feet instead of like two to three days. Okay. At 17 camp and then going for the summit. Wow. So that's a, okay. So a lot of logistical planning and that's a long time to spend on the mountain just to acclimate. Yeah, totally. It's not, it starts at a pretty low elevation. So it's, it's the mountain starts at like 7,000 feet where you're dropped off. Mm -hmm. And, uh, since it's, it's so big, like 13,000 feet of elevation gain from, where you start to the summit and it's at high altitude. You just need to like spend a lot of time to acclimate in unless you're like, I don't know, from someplace that like Colorado <laughs> where you spend a lot of time on 14 years or like, yeah, I don't know. You just were in like South America hiking in the Andes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Or you're just a beast. Yeah. <laughs> you are not affected by altitude. I've heard yeah. stories of like really gnarly people being taken down from by what is it called? It's like a pulmonary edema or something. Oh yeah, yeah, cerebral edema. Well, there's there's hate high altitude pulmonary right. edema, and then there's haste high altitude cerebral edema. Uh, I think pulmonary edema is like swelling in your lungs, mm -hmm. and cerebral edema is swelling in your brain. Oh god. And uh, I think. Cerebral diva is worse. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. But they're both, they both can be like fatal. Mm. Okay. Well, that makes sense why you would hang out there for a week. So are you on foot or are you? Uh, so we brought, we brought skis up mm -hmm. the West Buttress and we probably skied about 60% of the way up to, uh, 14 camp mm -hmm. but uh, 
like at a certain point it just gets too steep and icy to like ski tour up the slopes so you you put on crampons on your ski boots and you just hike okay and crampons are like crampons are just like sharp uh like steel fangs that strap onto your boots so you have traction in the ice cool yeah they're they're pretty wicked but uh (laughs) they can really shred your pants if you uh uh, step too close to your leg oh god <laughs> or more than your pants yeah totally yeah i have uh yet to be skewered by a crampon but oof but, uh, <laughs> you learn to walk with your feet a little wider when you're wearing crampons so you're not just like scuffing your boots the whole time yeah man i wouldn't have even thought about that so is denali the tallest peak you've been on top of yeah, Denali okay. is the highest peak in North America, tallest peak I've been on by far. Okay, what was that like? Uh, it was really surreal on our summit day. We ended up starting at two thirty p.m. because we were like we had hung out for a week at fourteen camp and done some acclimation uh, there, like going up to like almost eighteen thousand feet, and. Uh, we had been looking like the entire time up from camp and right above 14 camp, there's this thing called the, uh, the head wall mm-hmm. and there's a fixed line up it. So there's a rope that's like just attached with like snow pickets and ice screws to the mountain and people go up there and they clip in an ascender that just like secures them to the rope and slides up the rope as they go. And so they, uh, they don't like slip down this icy slope yeah and so we had seen a lot of days of people like going up to 17 camp up the head wall and there's just like a a line of people just waiting at the fixed line so we never actually went up that way that's the normal route for the west buttress we chose to go up a different way to the summit it's called the uh, the orient express and if you're looking up from 14 camp um there's like just up towards the summit, there's a big couloir right down the middle called the Mesner Couloir. And just to the right of that, there's like another snowshoot called the uh, uh, Orient Express. And it goes pretty much like in a straight line up to the like 19,000 foot plateau that you walk across to go up to the summit. And okay. so it's like a much more direct line and you don't have to like go through these pinch points on the route like the uh, fixed line and mm-hmm. there's a few others on the normal route going up towards the summit so uh yeah we left at 2 30 p.m on what day was that like it was like march 30th i think and uh we chose to leave at that time because the weather forecast was really good for the next like day and a half and we figured like this is such a good weather window that we shouldn't pass it up now because we don't know when our next chance is going to get and so we left in the heat of the day which is really nice it's uh, often like sunny and fairly warm at 14 camp uh, if there's good weather and so it feels like I don't know 35 degrees maybe in the sun can wear like a light jacket and like no gloves if you're just hanging out mm-hmm. and uh 
one of our previous attempts of uh, just uh, acclimating. We had started at like eight in the morning and it was just brutally cold because there's no sunlight in camp in the early morning. Okay. So we'd like started and our toes went numb and we like, we got up to like 17,000 feet and we're still cold. So it was a lot easier starting at 2.30 PM, even though it's kind of like a weird time to start like a big push. So you're like cold, Um, even though you're busting your ass. How cold is it there? uh, Well, I wouldn't say we were that cold. It was probably like 10 below the one morning uh, we went out. So it's, it's pretty cold, but it's just like starting with like, you you know, we put our ski boot liners in our sleeping bag, but we don't put our shells in there. Mm -hmm. And so if your like feet start out cold, it's hard for them to warm up that much. We weren't like miserably cold. We were just like a little chilly and you don't want to have like numb feet going into a really big day at high altitude. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. Yeah, we also had, like, overboots that went over ski boots that okay. just add extra insulation. And uh, we had hand warmers that we put in our overboots, like, over our toes in between our uh, ski boot and our overboot there. So those kept our toes nice and toasty. Okay. So your 35-degree and sunny window was a lot better. Yeah, it was a lot nicer, even though we had to, like, go through the coldest part of the night, just starting out warm and, like, being able to, like, maintain your body heat mm-hmm. made it a lot easier. We also had, like, really good conditions, not for skiing, but for, uh, like, hiking up. It was really hard snow, so you don't, like, punch through. You're not waiting in it at all, mm-hmm. and uh, you're just, like, front pointing, like, kicking your crampons pretty much into the the snow. And uh, so you lose a lot less energy when you're not just sinking in each step. Yeah. Okay, so you started at 2.30 p.m.? Yeah, I started at 2.30 p.m. Yeah, it was. it's light all night at that time of year in Denali, pretty much. Like, you don't need a headlamp at all. Okay. Um, Which is pretty awesome. So we, we get up, like... Onto the Orient Express, we kind of like ski toured up to the bottom of the gully because it's a lower angle slope on that right side of the glacier there as you look up from 14 camp. And then we got up into the Orient Express, Kular, and then you're just like hiking up this very steep just snow chute. And so we put our crampons on, we have our ice axes, Jordy, my climbing partner, he had like two ice axes, and then I had like an ice axe and a whippet, which is like a ski pole with an ice axe head on the top. Okay. So we're just like sticking our ice axes in and just like stepping up slowly for like hours on end up this couloir. Are you on skis right now or are you in crampons? No, we're we're on crampons. We have our okay. skis on our back. Because okay. we're planning on skiing down from the from the summit. Okay. And so it it was like insanely spectacular out. You're just way up on this mountain. You can see 14 camp far below you, and you're just kind of hiking up through the late hours of the evening. 
as the sun goes down and you're kind of like in the alpenglow there. It just was insane to see. You look down and there's just like a sea of clouds at 10,000 feet that you're above. You can see like Mount Sultana and Bogoya, also known as Mount Hunter, just like across the sea of clouds or just other prominent peaks around. And it was, uh, it felt like being a dream. Wow. Like you, you're like, is this real? Is this, uh, <laughs> just because it's so far from your normal, just normal life and normal frame of view. Mm -hmm. It's like, it uh, you know, something you would see like a Nat Geo, like, drone shot of this yeah. picturesque like just golden peaks yeah lit up by the sun yeah okay and you're maybe getting a, a little sleep deprived at this point as well oh totally it's really hard to uh keep enough like calories in your body at that point mm. because your body actually stops processing like complex carbs and uh protein and fat once you get to like a certain altitude so we're pretty much just like eating like gummy bears and goose and like drinking water whoa on uh, our like breaks as we go up we bought uh i think jordy brought four and a half liters of water and i brought five liters of water on our summit days just because we knew we were going to be out for a really long time and you just uh you get really bad headaches if you're dehydrated and at altitude. Yeah. So I uh, did not want to experience that. So, so sleep deprivation and on a diet of gummy bears and water. Yeah, pretty much. And at a certain point, you just get up to an altitude where you can't, like, walk faster than, I don't know, like a disabled, like, elderly person. <laughs> You, you, you literally feel like yeah you feel so slow you you're just stepping like a few steps up the hill and then you feel like you just have to take a breather like, wow. for like a half half a minute sometimes and just on the the summit ridge there we uh you kind of walk across a flat plateau called the football field mm -hmm. from the top of the Orient Express, and then you get to the summit ridge. So walking across the flat wasn't too bad. And then we got to the summit ridge, and we're just, like, panting there, completely exhausted, just, like, it's we're so close. But I, like, feel like it takes all my willpower just to, like, take a step. And it's almost, it feels more surreal because we hike through the night and like we experience like both sunset and sunrise and you know it it got like twilight dark like the sun just dipped below the horizon but you're still like have plenty of light to see mm -hmm. and uh we summited at 5 30 in the morning and nobody else was up there wow. i guess the previous day there had been like a traffic jam like going up to the summit and a lot of people had just turned around because they didn't feel like they could make it up safely with have to wait for all these other people. Mm. So it was a, yeah, very surreal experience being up there at like the wee hours of the morning and we could see like another party coming up a different route, the mountain, just like a few thousand feet below. 
slowly making their way up. Wow. And uh, clicked the skis on and had a pretty uh, crappy ski down for the most part. We had a, a few, like, turns in softer snow, but most of it was just, like, windblown, just, like, bumps of Stratugi. Okay. <laughs> so just... So, you're yeah. just scraping your way down slowly. Yeah, pretty much. Like, there's a few points where you're skiing on, uh, like, blue ice, and you're just trying to go towards, like, the, uh, like, wider sections that maybe have, like, a little bit of snow on top of it. Oh, God. And uh, <laughs> that it's pretty low angle in those parts, but mm. you're just, like, on a wind-scoured ridge. Yeah. And there's pretty much no snow in places and we had not been up that part of the route before because we never went up the we skied down normal route instead of going down mm. um, the orient express because the orient express was so firm and just wind hammered which made it really easy for climbing up but would have been made it like awful to ski down yeah like 45 to 50 degree like bumpy ice damn that sounds scary to <laughs> climb up how how many yeah. vertical feet are you climbing in that chute so yeah this chute is kind of scary to climb up there it's called the orient express because i guess many years ago there were several uh i don't know if it was one or multiple but there's like some climbing parties from Asia who like were roped up and one of them fell and they all just got dragged down by the other person and like slid down that slope and died oh my god morbid so uh yeah it's, it's pretty dangerous that's why we stayed unroped on that spot because if it's it's like easy climbing yeah it's like only 45 degrees it's pretty low angle from like a climbing standpoint mm. but if at any point you were to like slip and gain momentum, if you couldn't self arrest, you would like slide 4,000 feet. Wow. If you, yeah, pretty much. Like it, the 14 camp is 6,000 feet from the summit. So we did a 6,000 vert day, made it back to camp in like 19 and a half hours round trip. <laughs> So it was a uh, it was a big day. We had no water left. We were like exhausted, dehydrated, wow. really hungry, and uh, just kind of in a daze, skiing yeah. down. But uh, made it back safely, and we slept for like three hours after summiting, and then packed up our entire camp and uh, decided to ski down to base camp. Damn. Uh, which, <laughs> was another big push yeah so uh yeah we didn't make it to base camp that next day until like one in the morning oh after God. leaving camp at 6 p.m um and it was just a, a like a slog through the fog and our sleds were like tipping over as we were skiing down we were like trying to like not break our sleds just because you have so much weight in them that mm -hmm. when you take a turn, your sled wants to just slide out and roll over, which is kind of brutal. Yeah. Damn. And that's another super long day on three hours of sleep. 
So. Yeah, it was a really long day. It, we, we, we got back to base camp, and we didn't even set up our tent. We just, like, laid the tent on the ground and just open bivvied it. Oh, nice. Okay, so you had bivvies at least. Yeah, uh, no, we just had sleeping bags and uh, pads, but it was so warm there, and we had like twenty below sleeping bags. So oh, it nice, was, it was fine. Okay, cool. We were, yeah, back at base camp, it had melted out like a lot mm. since we were there last. Okay. Wow, so that's a big push, and as far as mountaineering goes, we're talking about needing to read the snow obviously because you can't just climb up any shoot of snow right oh yeah yeah you definitely want to evaluate uh just the snowpack for avalanche danger mm -hmm. because you don't want to commit to a big slope that might be unstable in my avalanche so that there's that always in the back of your mind there's the cold mm -hmm. the fact that you're in a snowy environment and you have to live your whole life like in the snow for that period of time, which means you have to be careful about what stuff you're getting wet and how you're going to dry your stuff out, which luckily most sunny days, um, a lot of our stuff would just dry out in the tent because the sun got so warm. But you're like trying to manage your feet every day because you're spending all day hiking and we were in ski boots which are not the most comfortable footwear probably the um, least but yeah at least we had uh, down booties to chill in on the time uh, we weren't skiing or climbing up okay but uh, what else yeah you have to be really careful about hydration and uh, sunburn was actually a big uh big problem up there my friend he like had these vents on his pants unzipped mm -hmm. and he didn't realize like he had this exposed skin with no sunscreen on it and he got hellishly burned on his leg just like this small diamond of Whoa. red skin like on his thigh where everywhere else it's just white yeah holy crap I didn't even and then you also, that. on the lower glacier, like heat exhaustion is uh, like a real problem um, because at the heat of the day, if it's sunny out, it can feel like 50 degrees and you're in all this like, you're, you, you like shed as many layers as possible, but you're still like in a backpack. Mm -hmm. um, the sun is just reflecting up on you off the snow you're hauling a big load and you can just like just work yourself into heat exhaustion which almost happened to or kind of did happen to my teammates wow um we had to take a break just in the middle of the day and nap and rehydrate get some more water wow. um, just because it was so hot okay and are you pushing as a group of three friends who like want to get up the mountain and like have the skills to get up it are you pushing you're pushing harder than you would like in a a guided group i would guess um uh i don't know if we're pushing harder i don't it's hard to yeah i would say maybe but i would say we were more comfortable 
in mm. that environment than most people in our guided group just yeah. because we grew up in Alaska like Fairbanks where we're all from gets like 40 below every winter at some point so we know what real cold is we've spent a lot of time in the mountains and we've winter camped a lot uh in Alaska okay which uh, in the middle of winter it's way colder than Canali usually is like in this in the summer in May and June when the normal climbing season is so mm. I actually didn't feel like like I was ever that cold on Denali okay compared to how cold I have been okay cool and so you're a climber too and I'm just trying to I think like me thinking about it I'm kind of figuring out the intersection of like climbing and mountaineering and it's in some like sense rock climbing yeah Rock climbing. Yeah, because they're all kind of in the category of climbing, mountaineering, ice right. climbing, rock climbing. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, yeah, rock climbing is very different than mountaineering. I don't know. I, I guess I just love going through mountain environments and, like, being in nature and, like, using my, my body to travel through the terrain no matter what it is. Yeah. And, uh. I guess where where they connect historically is uh, rock climbing was like practice for mountaineering for um, like in the Alps they would go to the the smaller cliffs and just train to okay. get stronger and better at climbing for climbing bigger mountains and obviously since then rock climbing has progressed into its own sport and there's like all these other disciplines of it like trag climbing where you're you're like placing all your own gear and cracks and okay. uh clipping at and then sport climbing where you're leading up and clipping into bolts that have been drilled into the rock previously mm-hmm. and then there's like bouldering which is just climbing with no ropes over like pads okay um, and like much smaller little cliffs and rocks so on one but, scale or another you're like problem solving how to get up really steep things yeah totally or just get get through terrain where mm-hmm. the just like the movement of going through this environment is the challenge mm-hmm. and uh depending on which way you go up the mountain you might pick like an easier challenge like the West Buttress is the easiest route up to Nally, but there's really hard routes up to Nally too. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the, the goal as a climber for me is to travel into these environments that are maybe unfamiliar to me. Uh, they're new and it's like, I'm exploring it, but I'm also like challenging myself mm-hmm. um, in this to like see how far I can get up or see if I can get up it and like through that process I feel like you learn a lot about yourself you're forced to be in situations where you're you're scared or you don't know what to do um or you have to like rely on another person for help and uh I really like that that challenge of facing a, an objective with with somebody else you you're good friends with and Mm-hmm. you're you're in it together for the whole experience yeah yeah okay so you we started out with you saying you were a dirt bag 
self-proclaimed dirtbag. But yep. I, um, I get it. This really brings me to the question of like, I mean, someone could say like, what you're doing is you've dropped out of school and now you're just recreating, right? You're just like going out and yeah, having totally. fun. But I just, I want to know, like, I guess I want to illustrate the argument of why that's like the wrong outlook. And I want to know, yeah, more about like what you're learning out there. What do you feel like you're learning and accomplishing? Cause you're like, you left this place of education, right? But mm-hmm. in a sense, you're what you're actually doing now is finding your own education through what yeah, you're doing. Totally. Yeah, I feel like I'm constantly learning in the mountains because one thing I really learn a lot is just like how to stay calm and make clear-headed decisions mm. in a complex environment that you cannot control. Um, and there's scary things that can happen, like rocks can fall, um, your partner could get hurt. You could be on a rock climb and you could take a big fall and like hurt yourself or, you know, you can get lost, not know where to go. Mm-hmm. And you're like up above your last piece of protection and looking for another crack or something where you can find to get more protection in. So you're, you're scared. Yeah. And, uh, and you also have to trust your life into other people all the time. And so when my partner is belaying me on a rock climb, like I trust that if I fall, he'll catch me. Mm-hmm. And there's never a question in my mind about that. But, uh, yeah, it's something you almost take for granted is that when you tie in to go up a climb, you're trusting your life into somebody else's hands. Mm-hmm. And I think there's just something that you get a lot of value from, from that experience of just trusting somebody else and being out there with them. And you each just want each other to succeed, whether that means just getting up this boulder problem or, you know, making it to the top finale. Mm-hmm. You're like, you're in it together and you want you you're looking out for each other's interests and just like trying to look out for each other's safety and have a good time yeah and i really love that process and i feel like you get to know people really really well and then have like a pretty deep connection with people yeah it's almost it's like a self-sport you're also on a team and that's so like contrary to so many like the most popular sports that we have, mm-hmm. it's just like not super intuitive to be thinking like, okay, you both have a mission and you're super reliant on each other and you're also trying to better mm-hmm. yourself. There's no like yeah. trying to outdo someone else. I mean, unless you're trying to get like the fastest. I mean, there certainly or... is like com- competitive aspects yeah. that come into climbing, even like recreational climbing. Like I do like, if your friend like gets up a route, you want to get up it too, you know, mm-hmm. or like, you know, um, yeah. and it's like, I feel like a naturally competitive person and, you know, friendly competition to like motivate yourself is always good. A good thing. I think. Yeah. I'm not like, I'm not like trying to like, I don't hope my friend whips. I still want him to succeed, but you also like, you feel like 
you're expected to rise to the occasion and right just uh you know get it done yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense like from a running background it's so much nicer to have somebody out there or like somebody running with you that's going to push you to go harder than you would if you were by yourself yeah, totally. yeah when i was running cross country like if i had a teammate next to me and we were both just you know charging going hard i was like motivated to stay with that guy and like mm -hmm. we would pass people together and like i don't care if i beat him or he beat me like it's good if you're like pushing towards a, a goal together with somebody yeah fueling each other okay yeah so what other trips have you done since denali it's been a little bit oh man that's uh i've done a lot of trips since denali i I spent another like five months living in Montana and traveling around climbing in Utah, Nevada, California, went to Mexico to rock climb. And, uh, then when COVID hit, I drove North back to Alaska because I figured it was, uh, just a good time to be home. Yeah. Good time to work, uh, a job where you're guaranteed to make a decent amount of money mm -hmm. in the summer and, just lay low see what happens okay so uh but most recently uh i went on a trip i'm really stoked about uh to a place called Nenana mountain and it's uh in the Hayes range of which is a, a subgroup part of the alaska range uh east of the parks highway and west of the richardson highway if uh anybody wants to look at a map of alaska find that part of the world but uh Nenana mountain is uh, a big granite peak that one other group has rock climbed at before before we went out there okay and uh they took a motorized canoe up the Nenana river yeah like, to the headwaters pretty much and then they hiked like i don't know how far but like maybe 20 miles in from where they canoed or they left their canoe and they hiked into this glacial valley, left their base camp, and they climbed uh, two new routes out there. They climbed one up the south buttress of Nenana Mountain that is like 1,500 feet long, which is pretty long by like rock climbing standards. Like that's, uh, I guess that's half of what El Cap is, but uh, it's it's like a long day climb yeah one climb you can do in just one day but you know you might get weathered in or you might have to shiver bivy up there type length and what's a, what's then a they shiver did, bivy oh shiver bivy is when you don't plan to sleep on a route but you end up sleeping on a route okay uh which i fortunately have never done but uh how does that work like, you find a ledge and you curl up with any uh you know the rope or any other resources you have and you uh you shiver it out till morning when you figure out how to get down oh my god <laughs> you know, nobody nobody plans on shiver bivying yeah. so it's called a shiver bivy <laughs> anyways we took a helicopter from uh the entrance of denali park um let me let me check when was that i think august august 8th okay. we uh we were hoping to get a ride in with one of our friends uh, who has a, a bush plane, um, but the day of. So it's me, my good friend Ethan, who I've like climbed 
we started climbing together and we climbed a lot together uh, throughout the years and I uh, went to high school with him. Um, and then my other friend, Tristan, who I also went to high school with, uh, kind of like got got into climbing just through being friends with us. We had uh, looked at the blog of this guy, Jed Brown, who had climbed at Nenana Mountain in 2004. And we there's a few pictures. There's one. There's a few pictures of the the long route they did on the southeast buttress, and there's another picture of a splitter, the uh, corner crack, which splitter means just really like parallel, straight crack, and that, that's like the pinnacle of tra- trad climbing or traditional climbing is you're looking for those those perfect splitters. Okay where the rock is really clean, the crack is really parallel, and it just goes in like a straight line right up. So it's like perfect. Yeah. And there, there's pretty much, there's not a whole lot of splitters in Alaska. And uh, this one just looked terrific. And we we're like, we got to find that, and we got to climb it. And so we, uh, oh, Jesse. Yeah, Jesse with the bush plane. He's our, our friend who was going to give us a ride out and fly us to like the a landing strip near the toe of the glacier mm-hmm. and we'd have to cross a river with pack rafts and then hike like seven miles up the glacier to where we camped mm-hmm. but jesse's plane uh he was doing uh just like a routine check and found an oil leak on it and okay. so he had to get that fixed and so we we had some other friends who were also planning on going out to Nenana mountain later that week and they were taking a helicopter charter out of Denali Park. And so we called up the cho- the charter there, and we're like, we're trying to go out to this mountain. Uh, when's the soonest you can fly us out, or when can you fly us out? And this guy, a uh, super chill dude named Cameron, who is the, our helicopter pilot, he's like, well, yeah, I can fly you out uh, tonight, tomorrow, <laughs> the next day. <laughs> The next day, yeah, pretty much any day this week, I can fly you guys out. <laughs> and we're like, sweet, we're uh, we're coming down. We're gonna leave right now, and we'll be <laughs> down by like eight. Oh my god! And <laughs> so it's like it's four p.m. We're like scrambling all this gear. We had packed like all of our stuff, like we were gonna hike in. Mm-hmm. So we brought brought like pretty minimal stuff, and then we're like at the last minute throwing all this stuff in the to duffel bags like oh we brought a bunch of extra gear like more food and we like got a bunch of beer and just like <laughs> loaded it all in, in the pickup like drove down three hours to Denali Park get there at like 8 p.m. and it's it's summer so it's still like plenty light and he's like well uh you guys got your stuff <laughs> and we just like load in the helicopter without he doesn't even know our names he has, like we haven't signed anything like <laughs> just get in the heli figure all that stuff out later and yeah. so we uh take like a 30 minute flight and just land right at the base of the mountain there do you know and what kind of helicopter it's called an a star oh, okay it's like a six passenger helicopter it has a pretty big payload yeah there. like a lot of hospitals use them for med flights yeah right? hospitals and i think they use them firefighting too mm-hmm. to like pick up water and dump it on fires they're badass they're really uh really powerful 
it was like like raining and pretty windy as we were flying in and we're like man i don't think jesse would have even been able to fly in this condition but the the helicopters are damn a lot more high powered than the uh the bush planes and you can land right at the like base of the mountain so yeah yeah our stoke was just peaking as we were flying in because <laughs> i had never been in a helicopter before so that was just really sick and yeah. we were like looking at all these mountains that we've never seen before and trying to like as we fly down into the mountain we're trying to like see potential routes to climb on because uh yeah nobody had climbed there before besides uh the one party of jed brown kevin wright back in 2004 so there's very little information on the area and wow just like saw photos and saw that it looked really good look like you know perfect clean rock it's in like an alpine environment um that gets a lot of snow mm -hmm. and so not not much vegetation grows on the on the mountain so the cracks aren't going to be all filled up with stuff that you got to clean out and uh yeah we were really stoked to get in there and we uh we were kind of limited on the uh the time frame that we could go because ethan was working at a uh i guess he still is working there he's working for uh exploration geology company and uh like working like three weeks straight of like seven twelves oh wow and he had like one week that he could take off for the summer and we were trying to like coordinate that with good weather and finally made it happen we didn't know if he was going to be able to go or not but uh yeah we made it out there the first day and or that that night and then the next morning we hiked up to the base of this uh splitter corner and uh at first we 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 knew that that was the the pitch they had climbed from the photo but uh like the start of it looked way different we're like what the heck this thing has gotten like 30 feet longer because the glacier has like melted out so much at the oh, start wow. of the route oh yeah shit. so from 2004 to like, 2020 yeah like 16 so years. we had to like mm -hmm, we had to start the route like lower than where they started which was kind of interesting um like just to do new climbing right off the ground yeah and uh the start of the route where the rock met the snow there was this giant chasm where the like water runs down the wall and melts the snow out and so there's like this 15 foot deep chasm and you have to like step from the snow like across this like it's probably four or five feet wide span and then you have to like put a cam in the crack there and just like commit to the wall and you start out on these like moves that the holds aren't very big you don't feel like you're very secure on there okay it's like kind of a kind of a like tricky little start and then you go further up the route that gets like into that that splitter corner that was 
just an amazing climbing. So you, you started out initially a lot less informed than you thought you were going to be. Yeah. Well, uh, this this is like the one of the things that we knew was a climbing route. Mm-hmm. And we've done, we started like doing more route development this summer. Um, just like finding new cliffs that nobody's climbed on. Yeah. And like cleaning the rock and uh, establishing like a new route. And That's sweet. so we knew how to do that. And we knew how to like look for like features that would be climbable. And you're mostly looking for cracks because cracks are what you can put protection in. And so you want, you want to have, cracks pretty much the whole way up the route okay you know like maybe you can go across like short sections and no cracks okay or if it's low angle you can like go across it and and you sorry you said you put a cam in there what's a cam so a cam is uh it's like a spring load it's spring loading camming device where there's these like four metal lobes that um retract and so they come in and out and like can fit like a a range of sizes of cracks but basically they they just you can just stick them and place them in a crack if they're the right size so there's like a whole range of sizes of cams from like that fit different size cracks from like like really thin cracks like probably four millimeters wide where you can't even get the tips of your fingers in yeah all the way to like they make cams for they're like a foot wide or something for like really wide cracks okay they're really easy to place in cracks and they're um they basically protect you from from fall or they they catch you if you fall okay and so as we're leading up the rock climb somebody starts with the whole rack which is all the climbing gear on their harness and they they're tied into one end of the rope and somebody's connected with their belay device and is feeding rope through their belay device okay and uh the belay device is basically like a friction device that if the leader falls he'll fall uh like twice the distance back to his last piece so you if that's like 10 feet if he's 10 feet above that last piece he'll fall like 20 feet and he might fall a little further actually because the rope stretches a bit and the belayer is like a counterweight to the last piece of protection okay so they get they might get pulled up a little bit you don't want to be too run out as they say it's like uh too far from your last piece of protection okay because then you're gonna fall further. Okay, so have you if taken you fall? Is that common to take falls? Um, yeah, it depends on what kind of climbing. Okay. So it's very common to take falls on like really hard climbing that is like overhanging. Mm. Um, because that that kind of climbing, if you fall, you just fall into to open air. You don't hit anything. Yeah. Uh, if you fall like on a vertical thing you might you also might not hit anything but if there's any ledges below you you could hit the ledge and mm. you want to always make sure like you your protection is like in a spot if you're at risk of falling that you're not gonna like slam onto anything right and, like some something that you can hit before the rope catches you 
okay. is a is a bad deal. But yeah, uh, yeah, I've taken falls uh, both on like trad gear and like sport climbing bolts. Um, so sport climbing gear, there's bolts that are drilled in to the rock, and you clip them with your your carabiner and you clip the rope in and so you don't have to bring up any extra gear which okay. is a lot easier than like choosing the right size piece for like a certain crack and finding a spot where it's gonna be good and not come out mm-hmm. so that's like another like logistical thing like you don't know how wide the cracks are gonna be up there yeah and so you you bring a range of sizes and hope that the cracks are in that range. Yeah. But, uh, so on this first, uh, first day on the route, we basically like we're planning on doing this one pitch that they had already done, but the wall keeps going up like much further. And uh, a pitch is like a, like a rope length. So that's what you can climb in like however long your rope is, which our ropes are 70 meters like 230 feet okay and so a pitch is anything less than that where you start climbing to stop climbing okay so uh we started up that first pitch and we we're like i don't know what's up there we might keep going if it looks good and sure enough that next pitch after the first one also looked really good so we kept climbing up it great climbing fairly hard for for us we're like uh been climbing for like four years i i say i'm a pretty intermediate level climber i'm no like like i'm not gonna win any competitions for climbing Mm -hmm. um definitely not but uh we're like fairly experienced we know what we're doing we're doing and we're like trying to get after it and so uh yeah we do the second pitch it's the second pitch was my lead first pitch was ethan's lead and we get the second pitch starts up like a a thin hand crack they call it so you can't fit like your thumb in but you can fit like most of your hand in so okay. it's like a it's a fairly easy size to climb but uh yeah we get up through that section and then i like see another way up that just like traverses up this low angle crack so i'm continuing up that way and i get to this massive like like pedestal block and there's two cracks on either side of the pedestal and it's kind of in a a corner Uh uh-huh and on top of the pedestal i can see two massive rocks that are just like loose and sitting there oh And so I'm like, oh, shit, like, I do not want to knock these rocks down on me or down on the people I'm belaying. And so I'm trying to, like, get up above, like, climb up above the rock where there's, like, a crack. And so I can get a piece of protection in the crack so I'm not going to, like, fall. Yeah. So if you put a piece in above you, you can, like, tether in to that piece and, like, be tight on the rope and just hang there. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what I did. I got a cam in above these blocks, and then I just pick up like these forty pound blocks. And I'm like, okay, guys, like, <laughs> look out! Luckily, they were like not below, directly below me, but off the side. I'm just like, 
heaving these massive blocks <laughs> off the wall. Oh man! So uh, yeah, it's re- it's really exciting when you're climbing new terrain that nobody's been on before because you don't know what's coming up. Yeah, and you don't know if there's going to be like like a loose flake that's dangerous, or you don't know how hard of climbing it's going to be. So you don't know if you can even like get up it. So you feel like you're you're more committed and you're like forced to to figure out problems that you don't know the answers to. Versus like when you're repeating routes, you have like information about each section of the climb and like where the climb goes, where to put anchors in and belay and like how to get down from the climb. But we were just kind of like questing up there with none of that information. Um, And just kind of like trying to figure it out, like if we can get higher. Yeah. So I I climbed up above those loose flakes, and I chucked them off, and then I got to this really hard section where, like, basically all the extra features went away from both walls, and there's just, like, a, a thin crack that I could, like, just get the small parts of my fingers, like my tips of my fingers in. Okay, hold and on. And I'm, like... So you're climbing up this crack, and you talked about earlier putting your hand in, and now it's your fingers. So is there? There's no like ledges you're climbing on either side of the crack. Well, th- there is ledges some places. Okay. Uh, yeah, I I can I can send you some photos of like the whole route. Yeah. Just to make this thing more clear. That'd be fun. We could put but, it up. Yeah, for sure. Um. But yeah, basically the like you're just looking for cracks and like places where the rock looks like it's not loose. And yeah, there, there's like cracks, there's ledges, there's like blank faces everywhere. And you're kind of like focused on like, we could kind of see a line up the, up the mountain where it looks like there were cracks going the whole way up mm-hmm. and like ledges where you could stop and like put an anchor in and belay your your followers up okay. people below you and then uh okay yeah the, the cracks are always like changing sizes and there might but, be places like i guess the main thing i want to get at is like this crack climbing you're like literally just shoving your fingers in a crack and like putting your body weight on that right yeah totally like there's something called like a jam which is a term in crack climbing where you just are like making this part of your body like fit the crack and like like so you feel like pressure on either side of your hand when mm-hmm. it's jammed in there like it's not going to come out so that's a hand jam is when you like stick your hand in the crack and then you like press your thumb towards your pinky and it makes your hand wider and then you like bar okay. your your fingers against either side of the crack and like you feel a lot of pressure just on either side of your your hand if you're like pressing really hard yeah and so that it's like a certain technique for crack climbing but on this section it was like like the crack was kind of like shallow so i couldn't get my fingers deep in there and like twist them 
So, like, my fingers wouldn't, like, jam in that part of the crack, and I was just pulling, like, sideways on it and then pushing with my foot on the, the same wall in the corner. So, like, my right hand up here like this, and then I'm, like, pushing across with my foot to, like, hold myself on there. Okay. And I, it was, like, a really hard move that I had to do to get up on this ledge and the ledge was just like sloping so i couldn't just like grab it and pull up mm. so i have to like surmount the the ledge and then like get up there uh -huh. and i like i had a, a piece of protection right there at the top of the crack and i tried to move a few times and then i like okay i'm gunning for it and then i go up and i slipped and i like took a fall oh shit and yeah which wasn't too bad of a fall since I had a like a piece of gear like pretty close to me. Okay. Wasn't hurt. Like most climbing falls, you don't get hurt hmm. as long as you're like placing good protection and there's nothing below you to hit. So even if you're falling twenty feet, what's that? Doesn't sound fun. Just being like whipped by a. Harness. It can no. The the rope stretches. So when you okay. fall, like it it's like it's not like you're you're caught and you like you get whiplash you like jerked you kind of like slowly stall okay if that makes sense yeah. so it's like as long as you don't hit anything you'll be really surprised but you'll be totally fine and like i've like fell like and just kept climbing right after like you might be a little shaken up but okay hopefully you're you're fine and that's like the the cool thing and the thing i like about rock climbing versus like mountaineering or ice climbing is you can fall relatively safely while leading up the climb okay and uh like ice climbing since you have crampons on if you fall down a lot of times people's feet hit the ice and their crampons like just torque their ankles and they might mm. shatter their ankle or break their leg yeah and so there's just a lot, a lot higher chance of injury for falling on ice climbing so they say like leader never falls ice climbing but okay. well rock climbing you can you can kind of push it harder and still be safe you can like get you can try to climb things that might be at your limit or above your limit and of like climbing difficulty mm -hmm. and you can still do that okay with some degree of safety okay so you take this so, fall oh yeah i take the fall i'm all good and then i like figure out how to pull this move and i like pull up over and i'm just like panting on this like low angle slope like going up to the edge and there's like nothing that's like really great to grab on and i'm like oh no like like smearing on little footholds of my feet and i finally like get up and get just a spot where i can like make a belay and i belay my friends up wow uh, and uh that was that's just pitch two that's only two pitches of our climb <laughs> okay <laughs> i have to speed this up a little bit but uh yeah on that first day we made it another pitch and a half uh ethan led the next pitch the third pitch which started like in this really kind of featureless corner that had like a thin crack at the start but not really wide enough to put your fingers in 
and so you're like you're pushing on either side of the corner and you're grabbing like holds on like on a ret on your left which is like a convex corner i suppose a convex concave corner that we're like climbing up like okay. the corner of your room is okay. like the type of thing and uh it was honestly like really tricky climbing and he got through this whole pitch without without taking a fall or like without waving any piece of gear you know wow and just climbing it falling up i was like holy shit how did you not fall this is like really tricky mm -hmm. and uh that was uh that was when so now we've done like two new pitches of climbing on this route and that was pretty much when we knew we could get after we got up the third pitch we knew we could get up higher if we had good weather but yeah the next next crack we got to it looked really good from the bottom like it looked like it was perfect hand size and maybe got a little bit wider but hopefully not too wide because we only had cams up to like four inches so we can only yeah get up like protect ourselves up to like a certain width crack and so i start up this pitch and it starts really good i'm like making good progress up it and then it starts to get wider and so i'm like putting my fists in the crack like working my way up and it starts to get wider so i have to like stack my thumb on my fist like that and that feels like really bad when it's like not tight yeah and okay so it's like, like you're so making a fist but your thumb is on. Your thumb is stacked on the side, like, yeah. Like your index finger, like how mm -hmm. kids learn to punch. Very <laughs> <laughs> specific. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, you're like and just shoving that in the crack. Yeah, I'm just shoving that in the crack, and also at that size, like you're, you kind of, you jam your feet in the crack too. But mm. at that point, it's like almost too wide for my foot, and so mm. I keep going up. And basically, like, I get to a point where I feel like I'm solid, but it's, like, on the limit of how wide my hand is. And I take one step up, and my hand just, like, slips out of the crack. And I take another whipper. Oh, God. <laughs> and uh, luckily, that one also was not that bad, and I was fine. But I, like, tried some other techniques for wider cracks to try to make it up further. Like, you can stack two hands on top of each other in the crack, and you can, like, put your calf in the crack and, like, jam it on either side. Oh, um, my God. But when you're stacking your hands, you, you have to, like, find a way to, like, move your hands up. So you have to have, like, a really secure foothold because you have to move yeah. both hands up at the same time. Yeah, okay, and, and so your hands are, like, back-to-back -back right yeah, now. Yeah, they're, they're back-to-back in the crack, just, you, like, Are you, like, cupping them? Yeah, I, I think I was, like, cupping them a bit, and, like, you're kind of doing the, the hand jam technique, but you're, like, stacking two hand jams on top of each other to fit, like, a wider crack that's, like, twice as wide as your hands. And right now you're, like, 600 feet off the ground? Uh, How far was that? The, this is on the the fourth pitch our first attempt on our fourth pitch so that was probably like okay uh probably like 400 feet off the ground oh 400 
Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that's still you're pretty high fine. up there, and yeah. I like got up and oh yeah, I have the biggest cam we have in the crack, and we had two of those, two of those number four cams, and so I'm sitting there, I'm looking up, and it gets even wider, and like there's I don't have any cams that are gonna protect me here. I better uh, I better like just bail at this point and so we left one of our cams up in that crack and we lowered down because it was getting dark and we uh, repelled all the way back down the ground and went back to camp that night and that was okay. our, our first attempt so uh we were stoked that we made it like further up the wall but it still felt unfinished because we had like bailed and left one of our piece of gear and we like didn't end at a a point where we felt like it was a complete route and so yeah for the next uh next four i guess next three days it rained pretty much every day and on that first attempt uh we we like started climbing and it was it was snowing like just lightly and so it was not like ideal conditions to be climbing in we were like we had like puffy jackets yeah, uh, the belays, and you're cl you're climbing with bare hands. You you can't, you can't climb with gloves on because there's you don't right. get enough grip, and so, uh, yeah, we were really cold. But for the next three days, we made one more attempt on the route, and we took two rest days. And on that okay. second attempt, we only made it up to the third pitch, and Ethan started up that third pitch again, and he was probably only like 15 feet off the belay and he placed like two pieces of gear and just to his right there's like this massive flake that looks like kind of suspect like it might be de detached but it's like it's like 40 feet tall and like a few feet thick and like six feet wide or eight feet wide so this thing is massive it weighs probably like thousands of pounds yeah and he had two pieces of gear in the crack between like the rest of the wall and that flake and yeah. it was full on like raining all the rock is wet and he's trying to like climb up above his cams on this wet rock two little pieces of gear and he like slips both as he falls both pieces of gear rip out no. and he falls 15 feet back onto this ledge where we're belaying him and luckily oh. The rope was piled up right there, and so he fell, like, landed on the rope and knocked me over, and I was, like, belaying him. Uh-huh. And <laughs> I didn't realize at the time, but he, he, like, broke my chest, or, like, a rib in my chest when he landed oh, shit. on me. <laughs> and so I, I, like, cracked a rib in that fall, but... uh yeah, we bailed after that because we were like, what are we trying to do? This rock is, like, soaking wet. We need to wait for better weather. Yeah. And so that that concluded our second attempt. I think it's really cool that you've been able to – you're, like, in this tier of the sport now that you're, like, actually going out and finding routes that have, like, maybe not been climbed before or, like, really barely touched before. That's a pretty sweet yeah. spot to be in. It is a cool spot to be in, and I kind of feel like if I wasn't in Alaska, I would not be in mm. that spot, especially if I yeah. like wasn't in Fairbanks, because Fairbanks has it has like relatively little rock climbing. 
compared okay. to like a lot of places I I've climbed at. Yeah. And so it's come out of just uh, a desire to explore more around Alaska and like you know there's got to be more rocks out there that are good for climbing on and so we're just trying to find out where those places are and like if we can just add some some more climbing to the interior of Alaska and get on stuff that other people might be stoked to climb and yeah so, yeah it's been really cool because it's kind of a way you can like climbing can feel pretty selfish because you feel like you're doing this, this activity that you enjoy for mm. yourself. But in a way, like putting outs in can be uh, a way to give back to the climbing community with like more climbing. Okay, and, like, put in routes climbing in. to to explore. Yeah, or like just just like sharing the information with other people about where these these natural lines exist and just being up there like cleaning rock off the route just makes yeah. it like a better condition for for the next people to go up there yeah. and have their own adventure yeah that's pretty cool that's like counterintuitive to a lot of people's instincts when it comes to like sharing information just sharing information the out about the outdoors in general yeah like... totally there can be kind of uh i feel like montana has a little bit of a a culture of like don't tell anybody about the climbing here like a lot of it is like especially in certain areas like all like word of mouth climbing like there's yeah. no like or minimal information about like, routes in the bear tooths for example but there's a lot of rock climbing there it's just like not publicly shared because i guess the the local ethic is to we don't want this place getting overrun <laughs> by yeah. like or overcrowded so we got to keep it a secret but alaska yeah. is one of those places where there's relatively few people and there's so much to explore that yeah i feel like if we can add more climbing especially near fairbanks where there's kind of a growing climbing community we can just get other people stoked about being here and finding more to do and more to explore and just have that aspect where we can give back to the community that has kind of showed us this cool activity that we can enjoy and like climbing is one of those sports where it's really about or there's like a lot of emphasis on doing new routes and like exploring uh routes that you haven't done before and it's cool that you can go on climbs where like everybody in the history of climbing has climbed that route has had like this similar experience of going up this like feature of rock. And yeah, so you can, you can do movements that like, you know, maybe you're like your pro climbing idol has done before, like on this, on this route, which uh, yeah, you kind of cool connect thing. through, through the routes you've done other other mm -hmm. climbers like oh yeah like yeah that move is so good or like oh that that pitch is so splitter it's so fun or you know like or oh wow yeah. that that part was really sketchy like i didn't like that <laughs> you can just uh you know you share experiences with like the collective community through like yeah. climbing and like traveling around and doing these like you know classic routes as they call them
Yeah, that's a really cool way to think about it. Yeah. So it's a. Uh, I feel like the the global climbing community is fairly. It feels like a like a closer community than a lot of other sports. Yeah. Just because of that. Yeah, that makes sense. And then you have the, belay buddy factor. Yeah, totally. So. Like, uh, it's like a language of of belaying that is international to like any climber, no matter where you're from. Like you, yeah. You, they all do it the same for the most part. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. Well, to wrap this up, I have two more questions, and the first would be, do you have projects or like? trips planned for the future anything big on the horizon uh i don't have any like current uh like expedition plan or plans for anything like huge huge like adventure trips i've been keeping it like pretty uh spontaneous and just Mm -hmm. doing like weekend stuff through the summer i have one trip planned down to uh hatcher pass which is this beautiful just like mountain uh environment it's a state park uh just near palmer about south or five hours south of fairbanks and uh, okay it's got really really good climbing and all these uh beautiful mountains and alpine lakes and it's just a great spot to hang out with friends and just be uh be in nature have some great climbing experiences and uh not have to hike too far yeah which is well, that uh, sounds fun yeah so i'm stoked for that that's uh gonna go down there tomorrow and spend a long weekend down there awesome okay and what do you think that you've learned with mountaineering climbing like the entirety of the sport that you do that might be hard for anyone to learn in a different environment or activity i feel like this uh is maybe like some something you can certainly learn in different activities but like just having like mental confidence in myself um, yeah because when you're scared all these like doubts start to run through your head and when you're climbing being scared is dangerous because if you're scared you start to like grip the rock harder and then mm. your 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 strength runs out faster. And okay. so I feel like I've learned well to take those thoughts of fear and doubt and just like like can I do this or like is this like is this even possible for me and like just like take a deep breath, like clear my head and just look for like the next hold. And I feel like that's, uh, it's kind of how I, I live through life to an extent. Like, sure, I make, I make all these plans and goals for the future, but a lot of times things don't pan out as you expect, or like, you know, you might be thrown with like obstacles that you didn't see in the future and you just have to like roll with the punches, like just you know, take a deep breath, breathe, like, think, how can I move forward through this? And, uh, yeah, I guess that's something climbing has taught me really well because it causes me to be afraid a lot and have, like, 
have those self-doubt that I have to grapple with in my mind. And I think it's made me like a lot more self-confident because of it. Well, that's awesome. That sounds like a great thing to have learned. Yeah. Where can people find you, Jonathan? Uh, you can, you can find me up on, uh, up in Fairbanks, Alaska right now. <laughs> I'll be chilling mowing lawns, but, uh, no, you can find me on, I'm on social media on Instagram at Jono, J-O-N-N-O, Koenig, K-O-E-N-I-G. And, uh, yeah, I'm somewhat active on there, but okay. yeah, if you shoot me a message i'll respond to it in a somewhat timely manner but uh yeah awesome cool well thank you yeah i hope uh some other people can be inspired to get out have some of their own adventures whether that's like climbing or whatever you like to do get after it <laughs>